So in order to set up my talk this morning, I need you to be engaged a little bit right at the beginning. I know that, you know, some of you think that this is nap time. And, and that's okay. Hey, if, if, you, if this is the place where you can get the, the best nap of your week, I'm glad you're here. But what I want you to do this, this morning is to engage your imagination. And I want you to imagine a woman who lives in a small town. And this town is a very religious, highly conservative in cultural context of her town. Imagine that she is notoriously known as a sinful woman. She developed a reputation as an easy girl in high school. And then she stayed in town instead of going off to college. And it seemed like every weekend she had a different boyfriend that she went home with. And then she's been sleeping with one boy that she calls her boyfriend, but, and they're living together, but they're not committed to the relationship. She's committing adultery with married men in the town. Imagine that she is well-known as a notorious sinner, an unclean, defiled, grace disgraced, scandalous woman with a reputation that matches all of that. And imagine that she is surrounded by religious men who condemn her, shame her, and despise her. She won't go to church because church leaders have ostracized her. They've told her she is not welcome to attend church because she is unclean. Her friends won't have much to do with her anymore because of her reputation. And she feels trapped. Nowhere to go. No one to turn to. She's been pushed to the margins of life. In other words, she is present but not seen. She's in a community but not connected. She's alive but not living. Now take that woman and dump her into the context of history 2,000 years ago. And if you think it would be difficult for her in today's community... Think what it would be like for her 2,000 years ago. What her life would look like. How damaged and broken her life is. How brutal it must seem. And that's the woman we're going to meet today in Luke chapter 7. You can turn there or you can follow along on the slides. And so this is how the story begins in Luke chapter 7 starting with verse 36 through 38. It says, one of the Pharisees, and, and just in case you don't know who that is, that's the religious guys asked him, and that him is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anoint them with the ointment. Now, I, I want you to get the picture of this because as Jesus ministered around the area, he had always two people that he was contending with because he was accused of eating with the, the gluttons, the sinners, the tax collectors, the drunkards. That's, that's who Jesus hung out with. That's, he got invited to their parties, and guess what? He went to their parties, and he hung out with them. He didn't participate in the things that they, that they did. He just hung out with them because he knew what they needed. 
the other group of people he had to contend with were the religious leaders of his day, and they were very religious. And he had to deal with them. And so in this, this uh, recorded story that Luke gives to us is Jesus is now being invited into the home of the religious guy, and there's a bunch of other religious guys who have come in, and they're going to have a meal together. And I need to help you understand what this meal looks like, because it's not just coming in and sitting down and eating a meal and then uh, getting up and leaving. It's not a dine and dash kind of a Uh, time that they're going to have together. The meal is what you have the conversation around. It is going to take hours for this meal to be eaten, and the conversation that they're going to have over this meal is going to be a theological conversation. It is going to be deep in the nature of God. And probably because the Pharisees have invited Jesus to come to it, they have some kind of purpose in mind in which they're going to talk to Jesus. They want to probably nail him down on some things because they're already irritated with this young upstart rabbi who is preaching just this most amazing things with power and authority. He comes and he's teaching, and and the other rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're jealous by nature because Jesus is drawing large crowds to himself, and he's preaching a message that they've never heard before or never thought of. And so they they invite him, this Pharisee, his name's Simon, we'll get to that later, to this dinner. And because he's a Pharisee, he's probably a little bit more wealthy than other people. And so what the, uh, a person's home would be designed in, in those days who was wealthy is, is that there would be a kind of a courtyard so that on nice days in the middle of this house is a courtyard where they would eat and dine together, especially on big occasions. And so Jesus comes into the house and goes into the courtyard, and there's a table, and it's very low, probably about as tall as this stage that I'm standing on, and up against all around it, it's a round table because you're looking into it, and all around the table there are big big throw pillows, and they would lean on the pillows on one arm and reach for the food in the middle of the table, and they would eat it, and they would have their conversation, and their feet would be pointing away from them. They would be lying down while they eat. And so here's Jesus, and he comes into this place, and, and he's going to eat with these people. And, and it's going to be a long meal. Nothing is rushed. The conversation is going to probably be a little bit intense, but the meal itself is meant to be relaxed. Now, women and children didn't participate in this kind of a gathering, in this kind of a meal. This was for men only. And it's in the context and the culture of the day. Now, if you're going like, well, how dare them not include the women? Calm down a little bit. It wasn't Jesus. It was the religious nut jobs, okay? And so he's got this whole thing they all set up, and Jesus is coming in, and he's going to come around it. And what Luke tells us is, behold, a woman of the city who was a, sin- a sinner entered into it. Now, you've got to get this into your head, that these are... It's a invite-only meal. You can't be a dinner crasher at this one. Even the, the men of low stature in the community would not think of coming in and crashing in on this dinner because they weren't invited. And so to have, have a woman come in and jump into the fray of all that's going on would be unheard of. But to have a woman who has a notorious 
reputation in the community as a sinner, and we'll get to that in a minute, would even be far worse than that. And so here's, here's what's going on. They've got this thing going on, and she's walking in, and she presents herself, and every one of the men sitting around the table, including Jesus, knows who this woman is because the reputation she has in the community is that of a sinner. And when the Bible says that a woman is a sinner, what they are telling us is that this woman is a prostitute. It is a choice that she has made. She has, has been giving herself to men for sexual things on the nature and, and receiving money in return so that she can live. And so here's this woman who is wayward, and she's going to walk right into the middle of this religious meal. She walks into the door. She walks into the house. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that this woman has to be as nervous as a tail in a room as a cat in, with a long tail in a room full of rocking chairs. She is on pins and needles because she knows what she's walking into. She's probably ashamed uh, of what's going as she walks in. She doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody. She's wondering what will be said about her, what will be said to her, and worst of all, what will they do to me? Those are her thoughts as she walks into this religious meal. And all these men in there, they see themselves totally different than, the, than this woman. They see her as defiled. They see her as unclean. They see her as, as trash. They, they have ostracized her already in the community as far as religion goes. And, and because of being ostracized, the rest of the community has pushed her off into the margins of life. And she walks in to this room full of these men who see themselves as holy men, as, as righteous, but it's self-righteousness. They see themselves as good and pure and righteous. Everything the opposite of this woman. They see themselves as being those kind of people. And she walks in uninvited, and she does something that is absolutely unbelievable. These men would have stopped their conversation. They would have stopped eating. They would have been shocked. And there would have been an awkward moment where everybody's looking at her because everybody knows. And then what she does is unbelievable. Because she brought in this alabaster flask of ointment. This isn't your regular oil that you would anoint somebody's head with. This is a very... Expensive perfume, highly expensive. And it's, and it's only used on special occasions. And yet she has brought this into this room and everyone can smell it. I mean, it, it, it just fills the, the courtyard with just this aroma that is just sweet to the, to the smell. And as she comes in with this alabaster flask of ointment, she stands behind the feet of Jesus and begins to weep. She is crying so hard, and the tears are streaming so much that there is enough water coming out of her, her eyes, and her, her tears are pouring on Jesus' feet to where his feet become wet enough for her to wash his feet with her tears. Now, I've married a crier. And I've had a number of 
people in my office. I'm not just going to say women. I've had a number of people in my office who are also criers. Matter of fact, I have a designated uh, love couch in there. I call it the crying couch. And so if you think you're going to cry, you need to sit at that couch. But I've never seen anybody cry like this woman is described as crying here. Enough tears coming out of her eyes to wet Jesus' feet, enough for her to wash them. And because she's washing washing Jesus' feet, there's an indication that when this Pharisee, Simon, invited Jesus into the home, he broke all protocol with Jesus. Because when you invite a guest into your home, especially a, a special guest, a renowned person in this day and age, when you invite that person into your home, what you would do... Uh, is you would have one of your servants come along, take the sandals off of the man's feet, stick them in a bowl of water, and wash them with soap, dry them off. And then that servant would take some olive oil and anoint his feet and freshen them up. Because the paths that they walked on were really rocky and they were, they were full of dirt and grime. There was animal feces on the ground. There was all kinds of filth and garbage. And so you're coming into a place where you're going to have a meal. You want your feet washed because they're kind of sticking out, but everybody else sees your feet. This Pharisee didn't offer as a host that to Jesus. He should have, but he didn't. At at the very least, he should have said, hey, Jesus, there's a bowl right there you can wash your own feet in. But he didn't even do that. And this woman sees the feet of Jesus, and they are filthy, and they are dirty. And she starts to cry and wet Jesus' feet, and she's just pouring it out. And then she does the unthinkable, because his feet are, are completely wet, and maybe she's had enough tears to rinse them as well. Then she takes her long hair, and she, it's, her hair is up, and she pulls the pins out, and her long hair falls down. Long, dark black hair falls to her waist. And she leans down, and she takes Jesus' feet, and she, she dries them off with her hair. And we go like, that is such a beautiful picture of worship to Jesus. But the men sitting at the table were horrified. Because in that culture, when a woman got married to her husband, at that wedding day, she would take her long hair and she would wrap it up in a bun, much like Abby's, and it would be on top of her head, and she would never go out into public with her hair down. It always had to be up, and she would only let her hair down in the presence of her husband, nobody else. But you know what the Bible says about a woman's hair? A woman's hair is her glory. That's what God says. So this whole thing about not letting your hair down, that's not a biblical thing. That is a cultural and religious burden that these religious leaders have placed on the women in the community. But she doesn't care because she is at the feet of Jesus, and so she lets her hair down, and then she dries them, and then she kisses his feet. Understand this. That to kiss somebody's feet is to kiss the feet of someone of royalty. It was a a royal. She recognized Jesus as, as royalty, as the son of God. And so she's kissing his feet. And then she anoints his feet. And the whole time, Jesus is, 
he's having a conversation over here with these men on a theological thing. And, and Jesus isn't even looking at this woman or paying attention to her. But all the rest of those men that are looking at Jesus are looking at Jesus and looking right past him. And they're looking at this woman because, first of all, she's a notorious sinner. She's a prostitute. You could say she's a whore. What a horrible word. And she's been crying so much that she's probably got snot running out of her nose. She's a mess. Her makeup's running onto her dress. And Jesus seems almost oblivious to who this woman is and what she's doing to him. And he's having a conversation. And all these men that are looking at this woman, all they can think about is her reputation. They despise her. They can't stand her. And she anoints Jesus' feet with the ointment. I'm pretty sure that as she got walked into the room and she walked up to Jesus, the, probably the thoughts, because these would be the thoughts I would have, is he's holy and I'm unholy. He's without sin and I'm filled with sin. He is clean, spiritually speaking, and I am unclean in the sight of God. Martin Luther says that the tears that this woman shed were heart, that's heart water. Because it comes from the very depth of our soul. Our soul just bubbles up this heart water. These tears come out. And, and it's cleansing for her soul. It's an act of repentance. It's a public acknowledgement before the most judgmental, shaming, condemning, or self-righteous religious men. She's saying in front of them with her tears on Jesus, yes, I am a sinful woman and I have deep regret for the life that I've lived. Repentance. There's just something about repentance. She, she's, she's just letting it all come out at one time. I, I, maybe every tear was for every sin that she ever committed that she was so sorry for. And she's repenting. At the feet of Jesus, she's broken, she's humble, she's devastated and grieved by her sin. This is an act of repentance. I've seen that before, and it's amazing. And I've wept over my own sin, and it's releasing. But sometimes I wonder, in the, in the body of Christ, People talk about their sin as though it's no big deal. They talk about uh, repenting and, and turning to God, but, but there seems to be no emotion uh, attached with it. It's just a matter of fact. It's just a logical thing to do. There's nothing within inside of us that recognizes the, the, the depth of our sin against God and how much we have grieved Him, and there is no emotion attached to it. There's no weeping. There's no sorrow. It's just, yep, I sinned. God forgave me. Let's move on. And that's, that dis it, it disturbs me. It should disturb you. If you've not wept over your sin, you should be disturbed by that fact. And maybe you should ask Jesus why you haven't wept over it. In verse 39 through 40, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited 
him saw this, he said to himself, all right, I just want to say something here. You notice how he doesn't say it out loud to anybody? He, he, just, he just says it to himself, he, he, you know, quietly out loud. And he's talking to himself, but loud enough for some others to hear you. And you know what? That's what religious people do. Religious people see something that, that disturbs their soul and, and in their mind is sinful, bad behavior, or they don't like the way somebody looks or behaves. And so religious people, they'll say it out loud, not necessarily to anybody, but not real loud, but just quiet enough so that others can hear it, and they'll make this comment about whatever's going on because they have a, a judgmental, critical heart, critical spirit, and, and that's where they go to first thing is they go right to there. And here's what he said. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I think he probably said it something like, Simon, probably something like that, because I've heard that before. I have something to say to you. And he answered and he answered, say it, teacher. Now, what Jesus is going to do here is not what Jesus always does. When people sin privately, we need to come alongside of them because the Bible tells us to rebuke them gently because we need to go and talk to those people who were caught in sin in private so that we can bring them back to the table, this table, so that they can... They can commune with Jesus in the body, and that's a private thing that we do. But when somebody makes a, a, a big deal publicly and they sin publicly, they need to be rebuked publicly, and that's what Jesus does here. He, he's going to rebuke this man because this man has, has got a thought in his mind that there are two categories of people. There are the holy people, and then there are the defiled sinners, unholy people. And what he has done himself, Simon, he has placed himself in the wrong category. Because there's only one person who is holy and righteous, and that's Jesus. And everybody else belongs over here in the sinner's category. But he unwittingly, thinking of himself to be better than what he really is, doesn't see his own sin, self-righteous, and, and thinking that he is holy, has placed him in the category of Jesus. And Jesus is now going to help him understand that he has placed himself at the wrong spot and he belongs over here with everybody else. He, Jesus says to him, Simon, not only am I a prophet, I'll prove it to you. I know your thoughts and her sins. See, he, th these were these two categories of people come together. Jesus is telling him, you know, she is a sinner. And I am God, the God-man, and I know what she's done, and I know what you're thinking too. Religious people oftentimes, and probably almost always, you never say always and never say never, but I'm always going to say this and maybe never something else too. But religious people often see other people's sins and not their own. They pull other people's lives underneath the microscope of fine inspection and they are looking for the littlest flaw in their character or in their life. And they are putting them under the microscope so that they can point out the obvious sin of the other person's life. 
but they never take a look at their own life. They never come to the place where they're putting themselves under the microscope of fine inspection and saying, what is in my life that is offensive to God? What are the things that I'm involved with that are violating God's word? Where am I being disobedient to Jesus in my life? Religious people only look at other people. They only criticize other people. They only have judgment about other people. They only talk about other people. They only go after other people. And they never take a hard look at their own lives and say, who am I and what am I doing and how does this affect my relationship with Jesus? And so here's, here's where Jesus is coming. He says to this guy in verses 41 through 43, he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. What Jesus says is God has come to forgive debt. That's what Jesus prays when he teaches his disciples how to pray. Forgive us our debts as our, our debts are forgiven by God, the Father. And Jesus means that our debts are paid for by him. Nobody else can pay that debt for us, only Jesus. And he's going to do it at the cross. So he's going to substitute himself and die in our place to pay our debt of sin to God. And, and so he wants this guy to understand that there is a debt that we all owe and a debt that none of us can pay. And the only one that can pay our debt to God is Jesus. And he pays all of it at one time. And it says on our little script, it says that our debt is paid in full forever. And that's what Jesus does. But the Pharisee has no clue about this. He has no clue about who Jesus is. And so he's coming to this thing, and he's, he's kind of lost sight of who God is and who, who he is. The next thing that Jesus says is probably the most significant moment in this woman's life, starting with verse 44 and going through 40, 46. Then turning to the woman. All right. I want you... Keep in your imagination, this woman. You still have her tucked back in your imagination thinking about who she is. I, I want you to, to get this. Is, this is so incredible. A woman is near to Jesus and she's weeping and, and she hasn't said a word. She, she's not even engaged with the religious people. All she cares about is Jesus and he's going to defend her honor and give her dignity, and Jesus looks at her, but he's still talking to Simon. But as he looks at her, I think Jesus is smiling, and I think he's looking at her in the eyes with the most love and affection and compassion that this woman has ever seen in any human being in her entire life. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And what he means by that when he says, do you see this woman? He's asking, have you ever really stopped and taken a look at her as a human? Do you see this woman? 
Because when you look at people through religious eyes, you don't see them at all. All you see is someone condemnable, damnable, and shamed. You don't see anyone in the image and likeness of God. All you see is the person that you want to beat up with religious thoughts, jargons, do's and don'ts. He goes on to say this. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wept my feet. She wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was formal greeting. But from the time I I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. What Jesus is telling this Pharisee who sees himself as a very religious, loving kind of a man who really knows God, understands God, and obeys all the law, is what he's saying is, do you see this woman, Simon? She is a worshiper, and you're not. She repents, and you don't. She serves, and you won't. She gives generously, and you won't give at all. Simon, just, just because you're a holy man as designated by somebody else or some other teacher in a religious club, does not mean that you have anything to teach her. In fact, this woman you would call a whore has much she can teach you. There are things that you could learn from her, how to be humble and how to repent and what a broken heart and contrite heart looks like, how to be honest and generous and serving and caring and being considerate and loving and thankful and kind. She can teach you a two A thing or two about worship, Simon. She can teach us a thing or two about worship. Because our worship, I think oftentimes, we get into the worship mode as we drive into the parking lot or we're walking up the sidewalk. Or maybe we wait till the last minute as we walk through those doors into this place. We say, now I have come to worship God. This woman's saying, my worship of Jesus is going to be full-fledged craziness. I think that if she were among us, she would make many of us feel very uncomfortable in her extravagant worship of Jesus. We would feel like, oh, one of those type in our church, she needs to go to that one over there. You know, the, the crazy ones. By the way, just in case you didn't know, we kind of have been called the crazy church. It's because your pastor's half crazy. Yeah. Here's the reason why this woman is responding so passionately. Because she has been loved by Jesus. She has been loved and touched and cared for and received compassion and mercy like she has never received from another man her entire life. And finally, the God-man Jesus comes to her and he says to her, I love you and I, I know all about you. I know everything and I love you anyway. And she gets it. And so she's passionate and broken and free and generous and serves. So the story continues through 47 through 50. 
Jesus it goes on and says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. He could have stopped right there. But I, I want you to get this. She, all Jesus is doing is, is agreeing with her. She's coming in and she's saying, I, I have lived a life of debauchery. I am probably the worst person in this community. And I know that you will forgive my sins. You will give me freedom. I want to repent of every one of those sins. And Jesus turns around and he says, and he's looking at her and he's saying, this woman, her sins, and they are many, Simon. I get it. But her sins are forgiven. I mean, there it is right there. Everything, because she, she, she has loved much. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, what's going on here is all of a sudden Jesus took the hammer and hit the nail on the head. He said, your sins are forgiven. She was waiting to hear the words, you are forgiven. And I want you to know that one of the things I think evangelical churches have really missed out on from, from some of our other churches in the main line is confession. We come and we go, well, I just need to confess my sin to God and it's going to be okay. And that's true because God forgives those sins. But there is something about coming together with a brother or sister in Christ, someone who you can take the, the trash of your life, you can reveal it to them, and you know that they are going to keep it in the vault, in a safe place. They are not going to use it against you. They're not going to, they're not going to hold it over your head. They're going to say, thank you for sharing that with me. And then they say, I forgive you, and Jesus forgives you too. And we need to hear those words Jesus forgives you because we ask for forgiveness when we come to faith. But where in our journey of faith do we hear that Jesus still forgives me of my sin? Jesus said to her, you are forgiven. Your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The other thing Jesus is saying is these religious nut jobs here, they are going to be of no use to you from now on. You have found freedom. You have found, you have found what you have been looking for. You have, you have had your slate wiped completely clean. Now go write a new chapter in your life. Go write something that reveals the glory of God in your life. The religious guys were like out of their mind crazy because... They weren't rejoicing over the fact that this sinner had repented, that the sinner had come to Christ, that the sinner had found freedom, that the sinner was starting a new life, was being transformed at that very moment at Jesus' feet. There was no celebrating that. The, the religious guys were being critical of the way that Jesus forgave her of the act. They couldn't see anything beyond their criticism of what was going on. And Jesus says, you're free. Get away from these guys. Go live your life that I created you to live. In this story, there are three people. There's Jesus, in case you didn't pick up on that earlier. 
there are the notorious sinners, and then there are the religious nut jobs. And I believe that the reason the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record this story is that God knew how, we, how religion would try to infiltrate his church. Because what does religion do? It gives us a list of things we have to do and things we can't do. It becomes a shackle around our neck. We don't have the freedom to live for Christ. We don't have the freedom because we're always looking over our shoulders to see if the elders or the pastor or some other religious person in the church is keeping an eye on what we're doing and, and where we're doing it at. They don't give us the freedom to come and, and to, to live our life to the fullness that God has laid out for us. And so he wants, God in his infinite wisdom said, religion is going to try and worm its way into the, into the church, into the ecclesia, into the gathering of Christ's followers. And the church will lose its focus on Jesus when religion takes over. It's no longer about Jesus. It's no longer about who he is. It's no longer about how he transforms lives. It's no longer about the, the, the miracle of taking a broken life and bringing healing to it. It becomes, the church becomes a place where there's criticism and judgmentalism and self-righteousness that, and it rules everything. And those who are religious start to separate themselves from the greater community of of those who have and those who have not. Problem is, Jesus says the ones that think that they have it, don't have it. But there's also people like this woman who see how much Jesus has done for them. They feel the weight of their sin fall to the ground like a dead leaf off of a tree and fall. They feel the freedom of forgiveness and they express their deep and passionate love for Jesus in tangible ways. They serve the church not because they feel guilted into serving the church. They serve the church because they know how much Jesus has rescued them from. They, they come and they give this worship to Jesus that's extravagant. I mean, this woman was extravagant in her worship of Jesus. She gave where nobody else would give. She served where nobody else would serve. She worshiped with tears and, and a heart that was filled with just, just a great debt of gratitude. But it wasn't because I'm now bound to this in debt. It's because I love Jesus so much. My, my fear for the church and this church is that we see our worship as something we do when we come in here on Sunday and we see it as extravagant because we're demonstrative in our worship of God and that's okay. I want you to get that. I love it when people are, are raising their hands or they're washing the ceiling or they're washing the windows or they're carrying the big screen TV, or, you know, whatever their worship style is. I'm okay with that. I love it. Uh, that was supposed to be kind of like, okay, some of you guys are going like, well, I just carry a small TV. <laughs> but I just want you to know, I, I, we have this, this, this expression of worship when we're singing songs. And we think that's our worship of God. And we think it's extravagant. But I'm telling you, if you are not generous with your time to Jesus... You are not extravagant. 
If you do not give like this woman, I mean, this woman was extravagant in her giving of Jesus. She took this most expensive ointment perfume and anointed Jesus' feet with it. He's going to go back out and walk in the mud. And she gave everything right there, and it was extravagant. And, and we come in, and we throw a couple of coins at Jesus like he's a beggar on the street side and go, I hope that helps you out, Jesus. And then we walk around talking about how extravagant of a worshiper I am, how much I give to Jesus, how much I do for the church. And I'm telling you, you've only touched the tip of the iceberg when you come in here and sing a few songs and think it makes you feel good because you've been worshiping Jesus and what you have done is you've thrown trash at the feet of Jesus. Shame on us because Jesus is the king. He deserves more than that. We need to be extravagant in our worship. We need to be extravagant in our love of others. We need to find those who are sinners in the community with notorious reputations, and we need to be like Jesus and wrap our arms around them and hug them and say, you stink, but we're going to give you a bath and clean you up in the name of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus is telling us, get away from religion and step into relationship. You've got to be in relationship with me. And if you're not in relationship with me extravagantly, you will not know the extravagant relationships I want you to have with others. So here's the big question. Why am I all jacked up about this stuff? Why do I get so... Maybe I was yelling. I don't know. If I was, sorry. Sorry for yelling again. But I've got this passion for Jesus that this community needs. And I know there are a lot of you in here who have the passion for Jesus and you want to be extravagant in it. And the reason why I'm preaching this message right now is because over the next month and a half, we're going to talk about specific ways in which Jesus is calling us out of the four walls into the community to reach people that nobody else is reaching, to go to those, those people that, are, that have notorious reputations, those people who other churches are going like, they can do their own thing. We want to huddle up here in a Jesus huddle, and it'll be us four and no more, and we'll praise Jesus till he comes back and takes us to heaven. And I'm hoping it's sooner than later. Because he has given us a task. And if we're not passionate about that task, then we've got, a, we've got a community full of people who are hurting, who've been ostracized, who are marginalized, who are alive but not living. They are present but not seen. They're looking but not being found. And Christ has called us to that. And that is the very reason why we celebrate it around this table. And so we're going to step right. I'm not even going to pray. I want you this to marinate as you're thinking about communion and the blood that Jesus gave for us. And so we're going to step right into, into our communion right now. And, and let me just say this. What, what the Bible tells us about those of us who are going to come and celebrate around this table is that we have to have this relationship with Jesus. Just like this woman. We need to step into relationship with Jesus so that we can come and celebrate. This is, this is the thing we celebrate what Jesus has done for us because we were like that sinful woman and he has set us free and now we need to go out and celebrate and celebrate together. 
So if you have stepped into that relationship with Christ, this table is open to you. If you have not found freedom like that woman, you're sitting here and you're going like, I don't know if I've ever really done that. It's, it's just what it says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead, and if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, by the belief in your heart and the confession of your mouth, you will be saved. Do that. Do that and join us. But here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So here's, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to hand out both the bread and the cup at the same time. We want you to take it. We want you to hold it because we're going to partake together as family. It is going to be a family meal. This is the meal Jesus called it to. So we're going to hold it together, and then we'll all partake together. Um, one thing you need to know, there are some wafers. There's bread and wafers. The wafers, the little crackers, are gluten-free, just in case you need that, so you need uh, know what you need. All right, let's pray. Our Father, this morning, as we come and we stand before th- these elements, the bread and the cup, we recognize, Lord Jesus, that this was for that woman, your blood and your body given for the forgiveness of sin that you would, you would call us into an inheritance with you. And so we thank you that you did not give up, that you went to the cross, that you shed your blood, that you gave yourself so that we might partake of this to remember the good work, the, the saving work that you did in our souls and our lives. And so as we take this, help us to rejoice in your goodness in our lives. Help us to remember what you have done for us and help us to look forward to the day where you will come back and call each one of us your child and take us home to be with you. So we thank you for all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen.